is Amos chapter 9. chapter from verse 1 of course Amos chapter 9 I saw the Lord standing upon the altar and he said smite the lintel of the door that the post may shake and cut them in the head all of them and I'll slay the last of them with the sword he that fleeth of them shall not flee away and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered Though they dig into hell, thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to the heaven, thence will I bring them down. Though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them. I'll set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. And the Lord God of hosts is he that toucheth the land, and it shall melt, and all that dwell therein shall mourn, and shall rise up wholly like a flood, and shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. It is he that buildeth his stories in the heaven. He hath founded his troop in the earth. He that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. Are you not as the children of the Ethiopians unto me? O children of Israel, saith the Lord, have I not brought, the, uh, brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt? And the Philistines from Kaphor, and the Syrians from Kerr. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the simple kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saying, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. For lo, I will command, and I will sit, uh, sift the house of Israel among all nations, like a corn is sifted in a sieve. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which I say, the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. In that day will I rise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close the breaches thereof. And I'll rise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I'll bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I'll plant them upon them. And they shall no more be pulled out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for the book of Amos. We thank you, Father, for this last chapter of Amos. We pray tonight as we study your word together that, Lord, you would give us understanding. 
You would give us clarity of thought. Lord God, you give me wisdom as I share your word that I might speak your word in truth. Lord, that your words might not return to you void tonight, but Lord, they would accomplish in our hearts that which you have for us. That Lord, we might leave this night having known we've been in your presence, having known that you have spoken to us through your word, rejoicing, being able to give thanks unto you. Lord, guide tonight, I pray. Use me to your glory, I pray. I pray that, Lord God, you'd be exalted in all that we do and all that we say. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In this final vision of Amos, Amos sees the Lord right at the place of worship, supervising the work of judgment that's about to come. It's as if Amos wants you and I to know that God isn't detached even from the hard work of judgment, that God is involved in judging his people, that this judgment that falls upon them is uh, directed of Almighty God because of the wickedness of the people. In this final chapter of the book, the prophet Amos shares four affirmations from the heart of the Lord, three of which deal with judgment, and the fourth deals with mercy. And I want us to take a look at these four affirmations, probably three tonight and one next week. But first of all, notice with me, the first affirmation is, I will strike. In verse 1, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the lintel of the door, the post may shake, and to cut them in the head, all of them I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. I will strike, or I'll smite the lintel of the door, he says here. Amos here, as he sees this vision, Amos sees the Lord standing by an altar. It says that in the first part of that verse, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar. He's standing by an altar, and he's announcing that the worshippers would be slain. God's about to slay the worshippers at this altar because the building would be destroyed and would fall upon them. And the imagery is that people have come up to worship and as they're standing before the altar worshiping, the building now gives way and falls upon them and kills the inhabitants inside the building. He says, smite the lintel of the door and the post may shake and cut them in the head, all of them, and I'll slay the last of them with the sword. He's going to see to it that they're all destroyed. Now this temple here, this altar here, is probably not in the temple at Jerusalem. Because Amos is sent to the northern kingdom. He's not sent to Judah. He's sent to Israel. The place of worship in the south, of course, of Jerusalem. The place of worship in the north was Bethel. It wasn't in Jerusalem. And uh, up there in the north, they had a different altar, a different place of worship than they had in the south. So more than likely, this is not the temple in Jerusalem that he's talking about. Also, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, it was by fire, according to Jeremiah 52, 12 through 13, not by uh, an earthquake-type event where the building falls down. So this may well have been the king's royal chapel at Bethel. Although we don't know what kind of building that was, we don't have any descriptions of it, but more than likely, that's where this event is pictured in the northern kingdom, in the king's royal chapel at the altar. Now, wherever this altar was, we see the Lord giving a command to strike the sanctuary, 
the place of religion of the northern kingdom, this place where they'd gone to worship, supposedly worship Jehovah, but had not, this place that had been taken over by idolatry and God had been replaced by the idols of the northern kingdom, this place of worship, this sanctuary, now comes under attack by Almighty God and God strikes it because of the wickedness of the people. The commentator said this, like the boss of a demolition squad or the commander of an invading army, he snaps his orders for the smashing of the temple and takes personal responsibility for seeing that the last offender is brought to justice. Seems that God's warning back in chapter 3, let's go back there please of Amos, chapter 3, God's warning of chapter 3 is parallel to this vision of chapter 9. In chapter 3 and verse 13 we read this, Hear ye, and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off, and fall to the ground. And I'll smite the winter house with the summer house, and the house of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. Seems like this image, chapter 9, the vision of chapter 9 is seeing what was saw in chapter 3. It's destruction of chapter 3. When the Assyrian army comes in and invades the northern kingdom and takes away captive the Israelites, the northern kingdom... When the Assyrians came in, they destroyed the king's palace, the summer palace, the winter palace. They destroyed the altar of the king. They destroyed all the place of worship. When the Assyrians came in, there was nothing left. And it seems like Amos chapter 9 is the prediction of that same event as Amos chapter 3. Now, whatever has been described here in chapter 9 exactly and where is actually taking place, the imagery here is about the fact that God is not happy with their religion. And it's significant that the misguided religion of the northern kingdom is what in the end will destroy them. The very place they go to for security, the place they go to for safety, the place they go to for wisdom is the very place that will destroy them. Their religion is going to see the end of the northern kingdom. He said they turned their back upon God long enough. They corrupted their worship of God. And now God is going to deal with them because of their wickedness, because they failed to worship him in spirit and truth, worship him as God intended for him to be worshipped. God is now about to judge his people. The prophet speaks with finality here. There will be no escape. In verse 1, he says, smite the lintel of the door that the posts may shake. You know, often the threshold of the, the household or the doorposts are the strongest part of the house. They're secure. That's where the, the big beam sits, the threshold. It's secure. And it seems that this is, uh, the, the imagery here is that the door, if the doorposts are broken, it shows the whole house has fallen. If you take the lintel away, the rest falls down. And the idea here is that, that when the, if the doors are gone, if the doorposts have gone, if the door lintel has gone, then the whole structure falls. And this is a poetic and powerful way to describe complete destruction. 
The altar was a place of sacrifice. The altar was supposed to be a place of atonement. The altar was supposed to be the place whereby they came to worship their God. But God refused to accept their sacrifices and forgive their sins. Go back to chapter 5, if you would. Verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 21. God says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I'll not smell your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offering and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. God says, I won't accept your worship. See, their man-made religion carried on by unauthorized priests was an abomination to God. And he would now destroy them. He says he's going to cut them off in the head, all of them. I will slay the last of them with the sword. Pretty definitive, isn't it? God says I'm going to cut them off of the head, every one of them. I'm going to slay the last of them with the sword. This is the end. Your religion, your corrupted worship is an abomination to me, God says, and I am going to judge. You know, it's not far off the picture of today, is it? People have false sense of security in all sorts of false religions today, but their religion, their unbelief, is leading them to destruction. You look around the world today, there's lots of people who are believing all sorts of things. They've got faith in all sorts of religions. They've got faith in all sorts of religious leaders. And indeed, in in the guise of those religious leaders and those religions, they're even carrying out uh, atrocities and uh, things around the world. Another one in London again today, or last night. Seven people, uh, seven terrorists running around London, stabbing people with knives and running them over with cars and all sorts of things. In the name of religion. So there's a people today who, who are living in religion and they think it's given them security, it's given them eternal hope, given them something to live for, but it's leading them to destruction. Only Jesus Christ is the answer. Only Jesus Christ can bring peace. Only Jesus Christ can bring hope. Only Jesus Christ can bring uh, uh, satisfaction between God and man. Only Jesus Christ can forgive sins. Only Jesus Christ is the answer to the world's needs. Christ is the answer. Nothing else. And until Jesus Christ reigns as king upon this earth, there will be no genuine peace. For only when the Prince of Peace reigns will peace come. But until that day, what this world needs more than anything is not religion. What this world needs more than anything is not politics. What this world needs more than ever is not wealth. What this world needs more than ever is Jesus Christ. And beloved, we who know him have an obligation to them to pray for them, seek every opportunity to witness to them about Jesus Christ because judgment day is coming and their religion will not save them. The second affirmation, not only will I strike, but I will search. Look in verse 2. He says, 
Though they dig into hell, then shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. And though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword and it shall slay them. And I'll set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. At the end of verse 1, he makes this statement. He says, He that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. That's God's way of saying you can't run. And you can't, uh, rather, you can run, but you can't hide. You can run from me, but you can't hide from me. You can run any way you like to run, but you can't escape the judgment that is coming. And in Amos chapter 9, verses 2 through 4, the Lord makes it clear that it's impossible for the guilty people to flee from him. There is no place of escape. That's true today. There is no way for the sinner to escape the judgment to come. It is not possible. Judgment is coming. It's inevitable. It's guaranteed. It's a decree of Almighty God. It is coming. And when it comes, nobody can escape the judgment to come unless they know Jesus Christ, their Savior. And the declaration here is that they can't escape. They, can't, they can run, but they can't hide. Their sin has brought them to this state. And there is no escape. Look in verse 2. Though they dig into hell... Thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. Even if they try to dig into hell or climb up into heaven, there's no protection for them. For you can't escape your responsibility before God. They can't even hide in the highest mountain or in the deepest sea, as verse 3 says, and though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, which is the highest mountain in Israel, I will search and take them out thence, and though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence I will command the serpent, and he shall bite them. They can go to the highest man, they go to the lowest sea, but they can't escape the judgment of God. And the warning in this section applies to all false religion. Any idolatrous worshipper who tried to escape would be tracked down and slain, he goes on in verse 4, And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and shall slay them. I will set my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Even if they were taken captive into a foreign land, he would find them and judge them. His eye would be upon them for judgment, not for blessing. You know, it is possible for superficial religion to lull those who adhere to that religion into a state of false security. And that is what's happening in our world today. People everywhere are worshipping other gods. You think about it. They may be worshipping the god of nature. I heard uh, the Indian Prime Minister today talk about Mother Nature. We need to protect our planet because we need to protect mother nature people worship mother nature 
They worship what they call is science, evolution, scientific fact, with nothing more than another religion. They similarly believe the world came into existence without God, where we believe the world came into existence because of God. But it's just a faith, no more than any other faith, because they have to believe in the impossible. They have to believe that from nothing, something, even though every rule of science says that's impossible. Because everything, everything must have a cause. Every effect that you see has a cause. That's a statement of, of science. For every effect, there is an equal cause. And whatever caused this world to be, it wasn't nothing. It was something. And they can believe in the Big Bang. They can believe in the Little Bang that made the Big Bang. They can believe in the Goldilocks theory, which says that, you know, like Goldilocks had been in the house where the three bears came home and they, they could see that somebody had been there because someone had been sitting in their chairs and someone had been eating their porridge and... When they went to the bedroom, they saw Goldilocks jumping out the window, and so we can look at our universe, we can see that somebody's been there, we just don't know who he is, what he is, but we know that somehow it started with somebody. Which I don't understand when you get that far in your faith, why don't you just believe in God? But they can say all sorts of things. They can believe in evolution. They can believe in Buddhism. That Buddha is God. They can believe in humanism. This is found within man, that man is the answer to all of his problems. They can look to Islam, whatever religion it might be, but unfortunately, every one of those religions is selling mankind into a false sense of security that somehow, someway, they can solve the world's problems by their religion when Jesus Christ is the only answer. It's leading them to destruction. What men need today more than ever is the Savior. At the end of verse 4, he says, I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. An essential part of the old covenant was the promise of blessing or cursing in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 based on Israel's obedience. If Israel obeyed God, he would bless them. If they disobeyed God, he would curse them. There was blessings for obedience, cursing for disobedience. It was an integral part, an essential part of the Old Testament covenant. And here Israel is suffering the consequence of their disobedience, suffering the consequence of their failure to obey God, their failure to worship God, failure to live for God. They're suffering the consequence of their disobedience. Israel was in chronic, systematic disobedience right now. They'd had no good kings. Every one of their kings had been an evil, wicked king. And their idolatry and their wickedness had become worse and worse so that you could not tell the difference between them and the nations that surrounded them. There was no difference between the heathen and Israel. And because of this chronic, systematic disobedience, that they could, get, they could expect God's eye toward them to be for harm and not for good. Psalm 34, verses 15 and 16 says, The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against the evil, against them that do evil, to root them out, uh, to root out the remembrance of them from off the earth. The last part of the verse is relevant. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to root 
out the remembrance of them from off the earth. That's what's going on here. As much of the eye of the Lord was upon them, it speaks of judgment. The eye of God was upon them because of their disobedience. The eye of the Lord was against them because they did evil. And God was about to root the remembrance of them out of the world. Israel was about to go into captivity in Assyria and disappear, never to be heard of again. But you know, the first part of Psalm 34, verses 15 and 16, is that the eyes of God are upon the saved. It says, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. The eye of God is upon this, those who are saved, and that's the hope that we have, the stay that we have. The God's eyes are upon us. You know, I was thinking as I was reading Amos, and Amos makes this statement about, you know, the wicked cannot flee from God. You know, David makes the same statement. He says, where can I flee from thy presence, O Lord? If I go to the highest heaven, thou art there. If I go to the deepest hell, thou art there. If I go to the mountain, thou art there. If I go to the sea, thou art there. If I go to the east, thou art there. The west, David says the same thing, but in David's case, it's a matter of praise. He sees the same God. The same God's eyes upon the righteous as well as the unrighteous. The difference is that the unrighteous will be judged and God will remove their name, uh, the remembrance of name from off the face of the earth because they disobeyed him. And those who do not acknowledge him and accept him and own up to the fact that there is a God in heaven and believe on him and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will suffer judgment. But praise God, we have the same God, beloved. And that God is a God whose eyes are upon us, who know him as our Savior. And we cannot escape from his presence. Wherever we go, God is there. And that's something of a comfort for you and I. Beloved, here is a challenge to us. Let's ensure that we don't forsake the Lord our God, but walk close to him so we may enjoy his protection and his blessing. You know, it's easy, even for us as believers, to set up idols that cause you and I to turn from our God. The good thing is we can't turn so far that he forgets us, but we can find ourselves out of his care by walking away from his presence. And daily we must seek to walk close to the Lord that we might enjoy his blessings upon us. And beloved, because our world is so caught up in religion and wickedness, more than ever we need to be a witness for Jesus Christ today. I will strike, I will search, I will destroy. Verse 5. And the Lord God of hosts, is he that toucheth the land, and it shall melt, and all that dwell therein shall mourn, and it shall rise up wholly like a flood, and shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. It's he that buildeth his stories in the heaven, hath founded his troop in the earth, he that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them upon the face of the earth, the Lord is his name. Are you not as children of the Ethiopians unto me? O children of Israel, saith the Lord, have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt? And the Philistines from Kephor, 
and the Syrians from Kerr. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the simple kingdom, and I will destroy it from the fa off the face of the earth, saying, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. For lo, I command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in the sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. The third affirmation from God is I will destroy. It's interesting when Israel remembered who God was, they acted the way they ought to act. And the problem here is they've forgotten who their God is and Amos starts this verse by saying, and the Lord God of hosts. He reminds them who it is that they're supposed to be serving, who it is they're supposed to be worshipping, who it is they're supposed to be living for. And whenever Israel obeyed God, when they recognized him for who he was, whenever they listened to uh, his commands, they indeed acted like they ought to act. They acted in a way that brought glory unto God. And to that end, we find constantly Amos and the other prophets teaching us about the glory of God so that we might know how we should live based on our understanding of who God is. You read the prophets. You read the Old Testament prophets. They continually tell us about who God is. They describe to us his character. They describe to us his nature. They describe to us his attributes and, his, and, and, and everything about him. And they want us to know God. Because they understand that if we know God, if we come to know him intimately and we know him personally, it affects the way that we live. It affects the way that we behave. It affects what we say. It's the classic, you know, of, of Isaiah, chapter 8, where Isaiah is there in the presence of Almighty God and the house begins to shake and Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am undone. It feels like he's about to die. And, and God uh, uh, sends an angel from the altar to place the coals of fire in his tongue and, and, and cleanses him. And, and, and Isaiah is moved by what he sees. And God says, who shall go for us and who shall ascend? And he says, here my Lord, send me as a response to the majesty and the glory of Almighty God that is seen there in Isaiah chapter 8. Chapter 6, sorry. Verse 8. Whenever we get a glimpse of the glory of God, it has an impact on the whole way we live. And so the, uh, the prophets continually take Israel and you and I to a place where we understand who God is. And even here, in the midst of this final vision, in the midst of all this judgment, Amos wants you and I to know God's glory and God's majesty. To know the God who we lived before, in fact, wants Israel to understand it. And so Amos uses the title, the Lord God, again, here in verse 5, and the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God. And he uses it 12 times in Amos chapter 7 through Amos chapter 9. These three chapters of judgment... Twelve times he uses the phrase, Lord God, because even in the midst of judgment, he wants the people to understand who it is that they have offended, 
who it is that they've sinned against. It is the Lord God. Emphasizing the sovereignty of God. It's interesting that nine times in the book, Amos calls God Lord of hosts, as he does here. And the Lord God of hosts is he that toucheth the land. Let the Lord of the armies of heaven and earth. This title illustrates the Lord's awesome power. For the Lord will be the one to accomplish this judgment because of who he is. You see, Amos reminds them that they're suffering judgment. They're about to suffer judgment. They're about to be wiped off the face of the earth because they've offended. They've sinned against the Lord God of heaven, the Lord God of hosts. This is not just some idol. This is not just some God. This is the God of very gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jehovah the one who delivered them from Egypt, the one who established them in the land, the one who has provided for them and cared for them, protected them, that's the God they have sinned against. They've sinned against the Lord God of hosts. And the point is this, that there were no ones to doubt the power or the authority of God to judge. What's about to befall them, this judgment that is about to rain upon them, they had no one else to blame but themselves, and they cannot say that God did not have the right to judge them because he is God. He's the Lord God of hosts. It's like the day when the unsaved stand before the great white throne judgment. They will have nothing to say when God judges them and contends them to the lake of fire for eternity. Nobody will have anything to say to God by way of accusation that God has no right to judge because God is God. And they've sinned against God, not just an idol not against other people, but against the very God of heaven, the God that loves them, the God that cares for them, the God that provides salvation for them if they'd only turn to him. That's the God they turn their back upon. And so in Amos chapter 5, at the beginning there, it says, and the Lord God of hosts is he that touches the land and it shall melt and all that dwell therein shall mourn. When the Lord touches mountains, they melt. When he lifts his voice or touches the land, it melts. Such language illustrates the power of Almighty God in the terms of fire. You know, fire is one of the most devastating weapons on the face of the earth. Known to fire is destructive. Fire uh, can do damage that, like nothing else. You've ever seen a bushfire and the after effects of a bushfire, you know what we're talking about. It's devastating. And here God describes his power in terms of fire, and he says that when <coughs> he acts, the mountains will melt. And in this verse here, he's foreshadowing a day when that exactly will happen. 
Because final days of the Lord, in 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 10, we read this. It says, The final day of the Lord, which will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great voice, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. There is a day coming when this whole world is going to burn. After the tribulation, after the millennial kingdom, when God brings in the new heaven and the new earth, the, that day comes, this old earth is going to burn. The elements are, going to, elements are going to melt with a fervent heat. God is going to judge. God is going to demonstrate once more his power. And eternity will be glorious. Amos reminded them of the greatness of God. The God thought they were worshipping, the God that they'd forgotten to worship, Amos reminds them of just how great their God is. He's the God of creation. He can melt the earth with a torch. He can make the land rise and fall like the swelling of the river Nile. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, And all that dwell therein shall mourn, and it shall rise up wholly like a flood, and shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. He controls the heavens, the earth, the seas, and no one can stay his hand. Look in verse nine, 6, he says, It is he that buildeth his stories in the heaven, that formed his troop in the earth. He that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. God's the creator of all things. God can create and God can destroy. This is the God that you've rejected? It's foolishness to reject this God, this great and powerful God, this God who has all power at his disposal to reject him, to ignore him, particularly for Israel, who knew him and had seen his mighty hand to reject him and ignore him. His foolishness. For he's a great and powerful God. Jehovah is the God of history. He showed his great power by delivering the Jews from bondage. Look in verse 7. Are ye not the children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel, saith the Lord? Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from uh, Kaphor, and the Syrians from Kerr? He says, aren't you like the Ethiopians to me? I don't know you anymore. But you are the children of Israel. I brought thee out of Egypt. He claimed them for his own, yet they turned away from him and they went their own way. And God says, you're just like the Ethiopians to me. You're no different than the unsaved, wicked Gentile nations. I'm your God. I delivered you from Egypt. I'm the all-powerful one, the all-magnificent, all majestic, all-powerful God. But you rejected me. And so you'll treat the Jews as special people and treats the Gentiles. Look in verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it off the face of the earth. I'm going to treat them just like the heathen. Israel gave up her national distinctiveness when they abandoned their worship of God. Now God's going to judge them because of their wickedness. And beloved, this whole world is heading for the same destination. 
judgment is coming because this world has rejected the very God that created it. The very God that sustains the existence in which we live. The very God that pours the rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. That very God is the God that our world has rejected and because they have, judgment is coming. But you know, the amazing thing is, right in the midst of all of this, there's a phrase at the end of verse 8 that is remarkable. Saying that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, it's the Lord. For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations like a corn is sifted in the sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sins of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. In the midst of all this doom and gloom, in the midst of all this judgment, in the midst of all this devastation and destruction, God slaying and God, God searching and, and God acting, what we find is God makes this statement that not everybody is going to be destroyed. In the midst of it all, we see God is indeed a God of mercy, a God of grace. You see, he will keep his covenant with Abraham and his descendants even in the midst of a wicked generation. God made a promise to Abraham, an unconditional covenant with Abraham about what he would do with the nation, he would raise of a nation, and that those people who called him by their name, he would bless them and look after them. And he says, even in the midst of all of this nation of Israel, in all of this wickedness, in all of this sinfulness, and judgment is impending, and there is, you can run, but you cannot hide, and it doesn't matter where you go, you will be judged. In the midst of that, I'm going to sift them in a sieve. And any of the righteous, the least of them, will not be destroyed. I will show mercy even in the midst of wickedness. If anybody will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall be saved. The nation will be sifted, the sinners will be punished, but none of the true worshippers of God, even in Israel, will be lost. Because it's always the believing remnant that God watches over, so they might fulfill his will on the earth. The self-confident sinners don't expect to be punished, it says in verse 10. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. They don't think that they're going to be punished. The sinners will be punished, but the saints, the righteous, will be saved. Beloved, that's today. We live in a wicked and vile generation. We live in a world that is full of uh, of wickedness and sin. A world that is destined for a Christ's eternity. But in the midst of that, anybody who cries out to Jesus Christ, cries out to God, and cries out for salvation, our gracious, merciful God will save. Even though our world is dead for judgment. You know, today the world is full of self-confident sinners who don't expect to be punished. They're eating and drinking 
just like in the days of Noah, oblivious of what's going on. Our world is getting increasingly more wicked. In the next uh, two weeks, Ireland, Northern Ireland, uh, Southern Ireland, the Irish Republic of Ireland, are going to elect their first openly gay prime minister. That nation, that uh, European nation, that, that uh, Republic of Ireland, used to be the most conservative in all of Europe. They voted on gay marriage last year sometime, and now they're going to have the openly gay, and they're proud of it. And the Europe is holding them up as a stample of perversiveness to the world. Our world today, beloved, is openly sinning against a holy God and they think they can go on doing it without any consequences, but judgment is coming. They think nothing's going to happen. They can do simply as they please. They say, where is the promise of his coming? As 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4 says, but judgment is coming. It can't be avoided. Sinners will be judged. 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Verse 13 says, Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And that's the generation in which we live, beloved. The world is going on its merry way, thinking it can do as it pleases, and snub the very thought that there is a God in heaven who even cares about them. And judgment is coming. Go with me, please, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, commencing in verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in your mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that was worshipped, so that he has God sitting in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not, that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know that withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who know, now letteth will let, until he be taken out of the way. Then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness and unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they shall believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure and unrighteousness. Of course, this is speaking about the tribulation period and what's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period, how that God is going to judge. There is a day coming whereby the wicked one will rise 
the Antichrist will come and he will he'll be in the earth for seven years. And at the end of that time, God will come in judgment. Jesus Christ will return from heaven's glory and he'll stand upon the Mount of Olives and the battle of Armageddon will come to an end and the wicked will be judged and the righteous will be allowed into the millennial kingdom. That day is coming. And things are going to get worse when we're raptured out of here. This Second Thessalonians is talking about after the rapture. Chapter 1 talks about the rapture. Thessalonians talks about the rapture. Here is the second coming. This is after the rapture. You and I have been in glory for the seven-year tribulation. We're going to come back with him. And on earth, wickedness is going to increase and men are going to be more and more confident that they can get away with just about anything. But judgment is coming. And therefore, beloved, it's imperative that with Timothy... In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14, we continue in the things that we have learned. That you and I remain faithful till Jesus comes. In these dark days, more than ever before, beloved, this old world of ours needs the light of the glorious Lord to shine brighter than has ever shone before because Jesus is coming soon. And until he comes, you and I need to shine as lights in a dark place because what this world needs more than ever before is Jesus Christ. They're on a, desti- a, a certain destination to destruction. And the only way in which they can be rescued from that destruction is that when God sifts this world, he finds them to be righteous in Christ Jesus. And he will save all who call upon him. The gospel needs to shine so that men may be saved. Time is short. The day is far spent. You and I need to be faithful until Jesus comes. There's one more affirmation to come. I will restore. I'm going to see you next Sunday morning. Sorry for those of you who won't be here because you'll be off at camp or whatever. You're going to miss out on the glorious conclusion of Amos chapter 9, which is a glorious conclusion. I will restore. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word this night. And Lord, the reminder of just how wicked our world is has seen, Father God, in the nation of Israel. God, the wickedness of that nation is reflected in the wickedness of our world. And Father, our world is just as blinded to the consequence of their sin as the nation of Israel was. And Lord, the only answer, as indeed was for Israel, is for men to turn to God and accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Lord, help us to be light shining in a dark place till Jesus comes that men and women might turn to you before it's eternally too late. Bless now we pray as we close with a hymn. Challenge us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.